You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I hope these talks give you a little bit of inspiration to keep practicing and make your world a better place. Yoga is more than just a physical practice. It's a lifelong spiritual journey, and we constantly need sustenance to help us stay on the path. So I hope you find that sustenance right here. And I look forward to seeing you on the mat. When you start practicing yoga, what every single student has to have in some form or another is a teacher. And this is something that is often taken for granted or sometimes forgotten about. But the reality is that every student's journey is fueled in some part by some relationship even if the relationship is virtual or remote, even if the uh, the student never meets the teacher, you know, face-to-face, especially not in these times, you know. But every student's journey is fueled in some ways, in some relationship with the teacher. And this is something that I think is important to constantly reflect upon and constantly bring our attention back to. I'm a student as well on the journey of yoga, and I'm here because I had the great fortune of spending time with my teachers, especially when I first started practicing. Had I not had a teacher, I wouldn't be here today. And at the same time, the student's journey is also fueled very much on the part of the student. So we are also responsible for our own journeys and our own students' journeys. So when we think about this, it is very, uh, very easy to place all responsibility on the teacher and all responsibility on a a source of power outside of ourselves. And we can end up losing our, our own agency. We can end up losing our sense of self. And at the same time, if we put too much emphasis on what we bring to the table, what our unique contribution is, and what we have done as individuals, then we end up forgetting about the valuable contribution of not only our teacher, but the lineage of teachers that come before us. And this is something that I think is useful to balance a healthy notion of self-worth with a healthy notion of humility. Most of the time I find that we human beings, myself included, are, well, to be honest with you, not so healthy. We tend to veer towards one extreme or another. We are either absolutely humble, where we are almost self-deprecating and flatten ourselves to the degree where we would do harm to ourselves, or we sort of puff ourselves up to such a degree that the ego takes over and is just growing bigger and bigger. It's very hard to find that balanced point of humility. And the same thing with the teacher. We have the teacher and suddenly the teacher is put on such a high pedestal that now the poor teacher, and I've done this with my teachers before, the poor teacher has to become like the walking incarnation of the Buddha or it will not be enough. 
the teacher must be like second coming of Jesus Christ himself, or then, then not enough. Then it, it's easy to point out. And the reason I say this is once you put this person on such a spiritual pedestal, then they have to be perfect in your eyes because now you're created this standard of perfection. You're willing to give up yourself so much because we've elevated this person to such a, to a status that the human being, no human being can really live up to. So in this way, we, go, we again go towards imbalance. Now, the other thing I notice is the imbalance is either we put the teacher on the pedestal. What happens when this, when this human being is lifted to such this elevated high as though they're this like demigod that we need to almost do offerings to and this sort of thing? Well, the only place for someone that's been lifted that high to go is down. And so this is the other imbalance. When then suddenly, you know, this person that we once idolized and put on this pedestal and lifted up to such high, then what do we do? Oh, we take that person down. We immediately break them down. Oh, I don't like them anymore. Why? Because I saw all of their human flaws and their imperfections and all of the ways that this person should not be up on the pedestal. Who has put this person on the pedestal? Well, you have, you know, the student has done that. I've done it so many times myself, you know, and it is a sense of disillusionment and it does create a sense of loss. Once we realize, oh, our teachers are human beings. Our teachers are human beings, but actually on the other side of that disillusionment is a very true sense of the reality of what the spiritual path can offer each of us as human beings, including your teachers and for those of you who are teachers, including your students. So when yoga can only succeed in manufacturing perfection, yoga will fail because none of us are there yet. You know, maybe one day after many thousands of more lifetimes, we will reach that perfected stage that is mythical state talked about as kind of, you know, that final state of samadhi or we'll join the Buddha in the realm of nirvana, maybe one day. In the meanwhile, we are all stumbling and falling and learning our best with various life circumstances and various situations that we come into contact with. And as long as we hold another human being up to an unachievable standard, then we will also be holding ourselves up to that same unachievable standard. And if we can flip that around and then accept and love the humanity of others, then we can also accept and love the humanity of ourselves. Because I guarantee you, when you flip through those extremes of placing someone else on such a high and lofty pedestal and then tearing them down from the pedestal and throwing them in the garbage can, and we, we vacillate between these two extremes then we'll do that to ourselves as well. And that same kind of vacillation between self-deprecation and self-aggrandizement is the same kind of cycle of emotional or, or mental addiction that we go from a really intense high to a really intense low. And so in the yoga practice, we're actually trying to find kind of a, a common ground with other human beings. And one of the hardest common ground to find is with your teacher, because it's hard to walk that line between Oh, how can I respect the authority of those who have come before me while at the same time giving myself space to respect my own agency and kind of traverse what is a very difficult line to walk? How can I give my teacher permission to be human and at the same time still learn from them and still, and still understand that they may be a little bit further along the path? I practice uh, Vipassana meditation, as well as practicing Ashtanga yoga. I've been doing both for Ashtanga yoga for about a little more than 20 years now and Vipassana meditation for a little bit less than that. 
and yoga for longer than that. Um, but in the Vipassana tradition uh, that I practice, the, the 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 main teacher, the sort of the you know, not necessarily the founder, but one of the main kind of um, you know teachers of the method, his name is Goenka, and SN Goenka, and and uh, some of the students uh, used to call him Goenkaji. Well, in one of the the longer sessions, in one of the longer trainings, people looked up to him so much and treat every word that he said as though it were words from God himself, you know? And then finally, one of the students developed enough courage to ask, oh, Goenkaji, you must be an arahant, which in the teaching of the Buddha means you must be the enlightened one. Oh, Goenkaji, you must be the arahant, right? Tell us you are enlightened, because if you are enlightened, that gives us hope that we can be enlightened too. And he said very, very humbly, very, very humbly, he said, oh, no, I am not an arahant. I am not an enlightened one. So he said, no, I am not that. I am not that. No, no, not me. But he said, and this is very humble and very true and real. And I think a very good lesson about how to interact with the authority of the teacher. He said, no, I'm not an arahant. I have still more steps to go on my path of awakening. But he said, but I can guarantee you, and this is Goenkaji talking, not me. Okay. But he says, I can guarantee you this. I have taken at least few more steps along the path than you have. And so in that way, I can lead you a little bit further along the path. So this is very important when we think about what type of authority to trust and what type of authority to sometimes question. And I think questioning is very, very useful. You know, so you can listen and, and find what I like to call a sense of deferential authority rather than absolute authority. To trust somebody who's walked on the path is not to give them absolute authority over everything else and everything in every moment of your life. But every single person has experience with deferential authority. For example, I would imagine that each of you at some moment has used the Google map. Is that true? At some moment, you have used this wonderful thing called the Google map. And the Google map is giving you directions. Or maybe you use the Apple map. And, or maybe you use even this other program, this other app called Waze. And so Waze is a wonderful, wonderful driving app that can reroute you around traffic jams. This is very interesting. And these are three different, or I would even say two different modes of authority. Okay, so when we take a look at the Google and the Apple authority, we now, you can really trust the Google by this point. You say, put in your destination. You don't know where this address is. Even, even I do this here in my home, even my hometown in Miami. Sometimes there's some address I've never heard of where this place is. I look it up on the Google map and then I put in the destination, take me there. So as this Google map is telling me, take right turn here, take exit number 32, take right turn. Now take left turn in 300 meters, take another this turn. Now you've arrived at your destination and there's a little arrow. You are here. Oh. Where is here? I don't know, but the Google map told me I'm here. For those of you that ever been to a new city and gone and checked into like an Airbnb, you have so much trust in the Google that you will go and knock on the door and put in a pin code onto some door that you don't know, you've never really seen before, but you have so much trust, so much deferential authority you've given to the Google map that you will walk up to a stranger's house and input some code into a door you've never seen and expect to walk in the door and have full access granted. And you know what? It works, which is what's crazy. So when we think about that, if we remove 
you know, our experience from interacting with the Google map. And we take somebody from a hundred years ago and we bring them up into our present day. And we say, look, here's this little device and we show them a mobile phone. Here you go. Use this device. I put in an address. The machine will talk to you, follow what the machine says. And you get there and you put in this code and you walk in the door. There we go. You're a crazy person. No, I'm not doing that. You come with me yourself and take me to your house. And then only I will believe that. All right. So this is a deferential authority. We've all done that before. Who are we actually trusting? Well, we're trusting the network of systems that Google has set up, you know, on the Google Earth, all the little cameras everywhere and all of the, 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 the systems and the, the, you know, the information technology, the IT that's behind that. And we're trusting our empirical proof because we tried it a few times. We get verified evidence. This works. I can trust this. All right. That's where this information is coming from. Now, Waze is more interesting, I find, in terms of authority, because Waze, even though it's set up, the technique is sort of set up there, all the information that's coming about the traffic is actually reported by your fellow drivers, which is an interesting shift to a more decentralized authority. So rather than the masters of the universe at Google inputting only their algorithm and trusting only their authority, then Waze has an algorithm that's that's based on knowledge gained from more decentralized information, which is interesting. You could call that an update to the notion of authority, right? I'm not telling you which app to use, right? I oftentimes, you know, prefer the Google, to be honest with you. I like the way it talks to me better, um, you know, but uh, so I'm not making an advertisement for any traffic routing app. You do whatever one you like, build your own. I don't care. I want you to think about this from the perspective of yoga and your relationship with your teacher. I don't know about you, but once in a while, those maps are not perfect. Once in a while, they get it wrong. Once in a while, you get routed to a strange destination or you're so close to your destination, but not there. I don't know if you've ever had that where it gets you so close, like you're trying to find some wonderful restaurant and then you try to get so close to the restaurant, but you feel so lost because you stand in front of a dry cleaner and you think this cannot be the restaurant. I'm not eating dry cleaning for dinner tonight. Let me let me look again. And you're just a little bit off. You need to go a few more doors down and then you're there. This happens quite often, but definitely that application has put all its heart and all its soul to do its best job to try to get you to your destination. But still, some flaws are there. Even the machine is not perfect. Google is more accurate than most human beings, but still the, still the machine is not perfect. So what happens? Do then the Google map didn't bring you exactly to your destination? Actually, this happened when the Apple Maps launched. It like brought you close to your destination, but then it didn't get you exactly there. And what happened? Were we forgiving? Oh, no. Oh, this horrible thing. I'm going to throw this out. We're writing nasty reviews. And then this is terrible. We're telling everyone this is terrible. I used Google Maps once and it got me off my destination. We again, we lifted this up and we throw it out. No, this is interesting. How do we relate with authority? So I don't know if you have tried this ever where you have thought that you knew better than your Google Maps app or the Waze app. Sometimes in Miami, I've done this, especially with Waze, because I feel like I'm from the city. I know better. So then it tells me to go in some strange route that I've never gone on before. And I think this app is ridiculous. They're going crazy today. There must be something wrong with their algorithm. They need to make an update. Forget it. I'm going the way that I know is the best way to go because I'm from here and I've been living here for all these years. And then I go down that direction. And then guess what? There's a massive traffic jam that I did not know about, and I'm coming directly in contact with a huge line of cars, and all I had to do to avoid it was follow the directions of the app. 
All right. So this is interesting because now we have another tool that is being brought up, especially when we talk about the notion of all your fellow drivers reporting and giving information. When you have not only the teacher and the technique, which is sort of the algorithm and the larger um, sort of what you could say is a larger deferential authority that you're working with. When you have reporting being done in a decentralized way, you have the power of the community. And the power of the community in the yoga practice is so, so powerful. When you seek to trust the teacher, that should make a coherent whole with trusting the community as well. And the community provides a very powerful check for the teacher, just as the community in waves provides a very powerful check for the singular authority of the Google map or the Apple map. Sometimes I look in the, the one of these other, you know, the, one of these other maps, then I go in and I take a look and then I see, oh, actually, it looks like I'm going to get there in 20 minutes. Let me check on Waze. And Waze shows that there are, you know, five different uh, accidents and, you know, somebody trying to do a paddleboard installation in the middle of the highway. It's Miami, weird things happen. So then now the community, right, the fellow drivers are checking the teacher at the same time. I want you to think about this because sometimes as a teacher, for those of you that are teaching, it's very difficult to get the feedback from the community. Oh, maybe I'm a little bit wrong in this way. Oh, I don't need to be perfect. Oh, remember, I am not the Buddha. I am not the second coming over here. I am just a human being going two steps on the path and I may stumble. And you know what? The students in your community may be able to point that out to you so that you can continue to grow. It is said traditionally, and this is a traditional presentation of how um, you know, the yoga practice works, that the yoga, that authority in yoga is, and, and, and growth in yoga is comprised over four main components. And I may have said this before, you may have heard me say this before, but it's something to continually go back to. 25% is the teacher. 25% is the community, all right? The sangha, your yoga friends, the community of students, and the knowledge that's held within the community of students. 25% is the student's journey and the student's effort, your effort. And 25% is the passage of time, that which cannot be rushed, the passage of time. We need to let all of that kind of steep in. Now, there are so many students these days who think, who, who, is, who kind of have an imbalanced approach to that. Either they think they don't need the community. Just, I do it myself. They don't need the teacher. Everything is the student's journey. And they don't need the time. They want to snap the fingers and immediately end at the final destination of yoga. So then we have, we have people like that, impatient people. I've been there myself. You know, I'm not saying I'm not like that. We all have a little bit of impatience between us, right? So we watch that tendency. Then we have some people that put all the all of the authority in the teacher. And, you know, I remember going to India numerous times, practicing with Patavi Joyce, now with Sharad, his grandson. And there were some students that I could see in their eyes that they have given all their authority to the teacher. And this was, there were some funny, there are some, there are some funny and there are some deeply problematic uh, results that can happen to that. Let me share with you a funny one. One day on my first trip to India, Patabi Joyce, uh, he said something in conference one day, like he said, oh, you should take a little bit of buttermilk. So first of all, no one really understood what he said. Was it buttermilk or was it what they have in India, buttermilk, which is like an almond milk? Nobody really knew. So nobody was sure. Oh, they just walk around and they went to uh, a small little, uh, like a chai stand and said, can I have buttermilk? 
And the, the people are like, well, what do you want exactly? Do you want this milk with butter, like butter? Or do you want butter milk, milk with a little bit of almond in it? Like, what do you what do you want exactly? And then nobody knew. I don't know. I just need to drink buttermilk. I need buttermilk. So then suddenly became buttermilk devotees. Everyone taking buttermilk. They don't know what they're drinking. But he's probably just saying, I realized that some, first of all, I am never like milk drinker. So for me, I, I, I have kept my authority within myself and said, oh, I like my teacher. This teaching is not for me. This is disgusting. I'm not drinking this. <laughs> no, thank you. I take coconut water. This is good for me. Thank you very much. I, for some reason, kept my authority. I was watching these people drinking these little glasses of what for me was disgusting. I couldn't make me drink this, but I'm watching them drink this. Oh, so good. I feel my practice tomorrow will be so strong. And they walk out of practice. It was the buttermilk. And then there was some group of people that were drinking the almond version. And some people that were putting butter inside of their milk and drinking that. And everybody's going crazy with milk. And I'm thinking I'm good with the coconut. This is totally fine. After some days, somebody asks Patabi Joyce, you told us to drink this buttermilk. And then he said, no, I didn't tell you that. You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody had asked him not what should I drink every day, but like, what is one of your favorite drinks? And then he said, I like this buttermilk for himself. This would be like, you know, I really like to make a smoothie. I'm not going to tell everybody to make a smoothie after practice, you know? So it's like interesting when you have that, you know, that, that, that too much deferential uh, authority given to the teacher, you can lose yourself. And so that's a funny example right? The harmful, truly harmful example is when so much authority is given to the teacher that it, that you, you don't question them any longer. And when they start to commit acts of harm or abuse, then because you've lost your agency as a student and the community has lost its agency as a group and collective to check and balance the teacher, then, then the teacher has too much power. Then they've usurped 50% more power than they should have. And then this destroys the balance of the community. So, and this destroys the balance of the teacher-student relationship. The student is equally as important to the teacher. Teacher is equally important to the student. Some people having a, a, a question the community that's lost its balance will say, you know, we should remove, we should remove the guru, we should remove the teacher. Well, if you remove the teacher, then there's nobody, uh, there's nobody to light the path in front of you. And then you have to carve out a brand new path. Without the teacher, you are like a pioneer. And to be a pioneer, it's so much work. I don't know if you have ever looked at any of the old pictures of the United States of America when it was, you know, pioneer land, but I was just in Alabama recently and they have a lot of beautiful museums in Alabama and one of the museums in one of the museums, they had all these photos of the late 1800s in Alabama. It was like pioneer land. And, you know, when I saw the houses and these things that were, that people were living in, I thought, wow, you know, look around today and this is a different world, you know, and it doesn't feel like that long ago. I mean, long ago, I mean, I wasn't, obviously wasn't alive in the 1800s. I don't think anybody born in the 1800s is alive anymore. I don't know, maybe one person. I'm going to say that, somebody's going to send me a message. Actually, there's one person. Most people born in the 1800s are no longer living, all right? Even 1899, maybe again, one person. Most people, not here anymore. So I say that because it was so, such a, such a, Difficult stance. If you compare 1890s in the pioneer land to in the United States of America, if you compare that to the 1890s, say in London, it's a totally different world. And I was really, really thinking about that. Like, wow, this was a totally different world. So if you want to let go of the, all of the people that come before you and craft a totally new path, then you have it's like going without the directions. No Google Map, no Apple Map. 
no ways, no London A to Z, walk around London and just figure it out. Trial and error, you will figure it out. Sooner or later, you'll figure it out. But I bet you, you will do some act of asking at some moment. And I do, I do actually uh, remember a moment like this. At some moment before, uh, before there were such good Google Maps, before there was such good, um, you know, such good uh, internet technology to get you to your destination. What did we do if we were lost? Do you remember? What would you do if you're lost? You're lost. What do you do? You pull over and you ask someone, hopefully, right? Unless you didn't do that. You were just like, I'll figure it out. But I remember asking people for directions, you know? That seems bonkers, you know? Hey, excuse me, stranger, friend. I'm looking for this. Do you know where it is? People would be like, don't you have a phone? Ask Google. What do I look like? Google? I'm not Google. You're like, oh, I'm from another generation when we used to have a human contact. I'm so sorry. Let me try to accumulate a telephone. All right. One time Tim and I uh, were in Jamaica and we were going to a wonderful place called the Treasure Beach. And in Treasure Beach, we uh, we were trying to find the treasure beach from Kingston and uh, somehow it was a massive rainstorm and our phones died. There was no internet connection. There was nothing there. And somebody, uh, luckily we had a local person who was driving with us, but the local person also didn't really know where we were going. We didn't know that. The local person was like, eh, I get you there. No problem. Okay. We go in there. We're in the car. It's huge rainstorm. Then the phones have no connection. The phones are dead. So we, we don't know. It's an, an older car. It doesn't have a GPS system, you know, and then we're just in the car. And then in the middle of the night, the rain stops, you know, it rolls down the window, sees an old timer sitting under some lights, hanging out, rolls down his window and says, hey, man, do you know where Treasure Beach is? And the guy's like, yeah, you're on the right direction. Just keep going, going and starts giving landmark directions. When you see this sign, you're going to take a right, go for a few streets, then take a left, you know? And when you experience this, wow. So even you want to be a pioneer and go without any directions at some moment, you're going to ask for help because we're not in it alone and we're not perfect. We're going to stumble and fall and we're going to need the community and we're going to need a teacher. Those individuals who eventually uh, or try to uh, go forge their way completely on their own at some moment will seek help. And so I think eventually it all comes back into balance. Eventually everything kind of comes back, uh, you know, into balance. So this is something I wanted to share with everyone because I feel like, I feel like it gets really difficult to figure out who we are in this yoga world that's, that's changing and evolving and where authority sits in this yoga world that's, again, changing and evolving. So I just want to encourage you to never lose track of the relationship with the teacher, while at the same time, don't put the teacher on such a high pedestal where you lose your authority. Keep your community. Value your community. Build your community. We're here now. You know, so connect with others who are like-minded, who share the practice and who love the practice. And in the power of the community, you can achieve a kind of, a kind of, you know, togetherness that's stronger than any one individual. Also, don't forget your own effort. If you forget your own efforts, if you feel like I, I am not going to, um, like I, uh, I, my effort doesn't matter, then you, then you've lost 25%. 
At the same time, you also don't need to be so hard on yourself because you realize, oh, 25% only is my own. Okay. So now I need the community. I need the teacher and I need patience and time. So you put in your own effort. You put in your own effort. All right. Then the passage of time. Please be patient. What do we think about time? If we take a look back at Patanjali in the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, Patanjali says the passage of time he defines as one of the elements to get firmly grounded in the spiritual practice of yoga. So Patanjali says, Dirga Kala, for a long time. You should take practice for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? What do you think long time is? You know, when I first started practicing, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I thought that one year was a long time. When I went to India for the first time, I was so frustrated at some moment. I sat there in India and I was so mad because I felt like the result of yoga had not been delivered to me. I was so mad. I was mad. It's a year practicing and I'm not doing all the things I want to do. And I was mad, you know, mad at yoga. Oh, where is this yoga even good for me? Why am I not peaceful and happy after one year? So this is, I'm from the United States. I felt like, you know, one year, this was a long time, you know, one year, you know, I, luckily I had the teacher and I had the community and I talked to people in the community and I said, what is that? I've been practicing for one year. And they're like, one year. I'm practicing 20 years. Oh, 20 years. Oh, not even ma- the thing is that didn't give me faith. Oh no. Then this person that I've been practicing 20 years. And I thought, ah, look at you. You still cannot put your leg behind the head. You know, <laughs> what hope is there for me? 20 years. You're going on this. What result? No, I didn't actually. And you know, they were trying to be nice and, you know, saying like, oh, it's not about that. But for me, I was young and, you know, too enthusiastic, very focused on the physical. And they were trying to say, no, it'll, it'll happen. You'll, you'll, you'll calm down. Just keep practicing essentially. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then they said, finally, I said, listen, you need time. It's not a year. This was a community. A lot of people trying to talk to me. I was too strong willed. No, I don't get it. Like, I don't think this practice is going to work. Then they said, listen, we're not your teacher. Go talk to the teacher. Go ask Patabi Joyce your question. Poor, poor man. And Sharat was there too. And I was so filled with this like, okay, I want to get the result of yoga right now. My first trip to India, here I was. And I asked him, I said, listen, I've been, I said this like it was a badge. I've been practicing Ashtanga yoga now for nearly, I hadn't hadn't actually been a year. It was nearly a year. (laughs) Like, yes. And I was ready for, you know, like, yay, congratulations. Good work. That was awesome. Like, no, he was looking at me like, you know, Sharad also was looking at, they're both looking at me like, what are you saying? This crazy lady, you know? So then I've been practicing Ashtanga yoga for nearly a year. And I want to know where does true lasting inner peace come from? When can I expect final and ultimate peace? That's ridiculous. I'm practicing one year. I'm like, make me the Buddha, you know? So I was the impatient one. As I said before, I was the one that didn't want to wait for the time. I don't care about the community. I really don't. I think I've put in enough effort for less than a year. I put in enough effort. I don't really trust him so much because they're all, you know, I'm disregarding what he's saying, you know, drink this buttermilk. No, I'm not doing it. You know, so I'm, but I at least ask him this question. So, I mean, you know, he answered me, in, in you know, in the he said basically the same thing the community did. He said, you know, practice for a long time, then Shanti is coming, you know. But he said, but but there was something about his presence and something about that presence in the room of feeling the energy of people that have been practicing for a long time and being in that space. So that when you know, when he said to me, you do three things: you take posture, you take looking, you take breathing. Many years, then Shanti is coming for you. No problem. I believed him. You know, I believed him. It's like he gave me a map. And that's kind of how I felt. He gave me a map. 
all right. And he didn't say, you come to my store every year and you do everything I say and you do this and you do that. He said, you do these three things for many years. And this is the practice. For those of you familiar with Ashtanga, this is the Tristana method. You take looking, right? Look at your nose, look here, look there. The drishtis, you take breathing, you inhale, you exhale. You take posture, the asanas, many years, right? Then shanti, peace is coming. What you're looking for is coming. So it's like a roadmap. I followed the map. I can say that what he said was true. He's not a perfect human being. Many, many uh, problems, uh, you know, many human flaws, many mistakes this man has made in his life. But he gave me this map and the map is good. This I can verify. The map is good. And this uh, technique is good. The Ashtanga Yoga technique is good. And that's why I still practice. And I know that the technique is true for everyone. Sometimes we look inside and some, some elements are missing. We miss the teacher. You know, you have the student without the teacher. They can go off the path. Then maybe they think, I want to carve my own path. Then they have to be pioneer. And de- delete all the Apple Maps and delete the Google Maps and go on their own. Difficult path. Some people choose that path. No judgment about that. Then they go on that path. Other people, uh, you know, have to go through imbalance where they lose the community to refine the community. Sometimes the community gets broken and needs to heal and get rehabilitated. Sometimes the student loses themselves so much they lost the agency. Then, uh, then, then there's harm done in that as well. And then we need to, uh, you know, come back. And then sometimes we need lots of time. Dirga Kala, if we go back to Patanjali, long time. What is a long time? Not one year. Now we know that, right? Not 10 years, right? Dirga Kala, we can think about as one human lifetime. One lifetime. The end of your life. Oh, now I've been practicing yoga. My whole life. How do you feel? I feel a little bit more shanti, more shanti. Okay, whole lifetime take practice, a little more shanti is coming. Then you can say yoga is working for you. So how can you find that balance? So uh, one student who's joined today is asking, should we, like, how do we avoid placing the teachers on pedestals? Should we come up with a new name instead of calling them the teacher? Should we call them instructor or guide or something else? It's not the name because the name, name is meaningless. You know, you can even say guruji. It doesn't have to mean that this person is, you know, the Buddha, right? It doesn't have to be like that. So in India, have you have, many people are called Guruji. This doesn't mean like respected teacher, you know, the venerated teacher. So you have like in uh, the university system, if you have like a professor emeritus, like a very esteemed professor, right? You, they get this title. Doesn't mean that this person is a perfect human being, but within their body of knowledge, They are deeply respected. The problem is that yoga is spiritual knowledge. And we think that then, because they have some spiritual knowledge within them, they're perfected human beings. No, it's not like that. Even the most esteemed professor in any discipline will have blind spots, even within that discipline, let alone within their life. So this is important to understand that you have to do the work of recognizing the seed within yourself as the student that is rising up to meet the knowledge that's being provided by the teacher. And to understand that this person, to remember that this being has once been a student and has been in your shoes when you're the student so that you don't think that they have descended upon the earthly realm from some perfect lotus flower uh, plane to deliver some you know, some, some knowledge that's, that's just not grounded in reality, that they were a student, they walked on the path, they have this, gotten this, this knowledge, now they give it to you. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You can honor them. You can respect them as an elder. 
and respect them just for the work that they did without thinking or needing them to be perfect. And then you can respect yourself for the work that you put in, for the steps that you take on the path without needing yourself to be perfect. And in this way, I think we can really uh, move towards more balance with the spiritual path. Now, another question is, how do you choose your teacher? And also, how do you choose the style of yoga? Many people ask me this question. You know, how do you know that you want to practice Ashtanga yoga? You know, now we have the problem of too much information. You know, it's too much, it's too much information. I didn't have so much information when I started practicing yoga. I, I didn't even know there were different styles of yoga. Just I thought there was yoga. I didn't know, you know. And I started yoga long time ago, long back in another era, in another time, in a distant land far away. It kind of feels like that. You know, I was 19 years old. I saw uh, people standing on their heads in the gym and I thought that looked cool. Then I went to the class and I didn't also, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't have a natural high attention to detail. I just thought that I was going to go in the headstand class. I walked into the class the next day. It was not the headstand class. This was the, the, the Hatha yoga relaxation class. And it was very disappointing to me because I felt like, excuse me, I came to stand on my head. I'm 19 years old. I don't want to take relaxation for one hour. I want to take headstand. I want to do headstand. I want to build our muscles and core. And I want to go upside down. Well, I didn't get out of the class. I did a lot of lying down. It was very, I felt really frustrated for about an hour. And then I left and I was like, that was awful. We didn't get to stand on our heads, but something in me was interested in it. I kept practicing. I got a lot of books on the traditional Hatha yoga practice or Shivananda practice. And I did this kind of just Hatha yoga for a few years. Then um, in a period of what I could see as like a life crisis, I, I thought I need to get my life a little bit back together. And that's when I decided to uh, practice Ashtanga yoga. And I didn't do this because I researched it and I thought Ashtanga yoga was awesome. I walked by a sign that said Tuesday, Thursday, 6.30 p.m. Ashtanga yoga primary series. Even say Ashtanga, it said primary series. And I was like, primary series, that sounds good. Let me do that. Sounded and I didn't know at the time, like I was going to have like a basic intro to yoga class. I thought primary meant I associated it with the number one in primary school. And I walked in and also didn't say when the class ended. So Tuesday, Thursday, 6.30 PM, primary series. Ah, I'm from the gym. I think every class is one hour. I remember when the class at around 7.30 kept going, I had a sense of claustrophobia, panic, and entrapment. I just felt like this needs to end now. This is, why is this going on? At 7.40, and I thought, this guy's crazy. You know, when's the next class coming in? They're going to kick us out. 7.45, this person is mad. You know, and then like, and now it's like eight o'clock. It's been an hour and a half, 90 minutes, the most exercise I've ever done in my entire life. And I started to bargain with myself. Okay, very soon, you're going to make an excuse. You're going to say your stomach is hurt and you're going to leave because who knows? This guy's a lunatic. He's going to keep you here in a yoga jail for the whole night. This is a bad class. Like seven, And then was like, I think 6.30 became 7.30, became 7, 7.45, 8 o'clock, 8.40, something like uh, uh, around 8 o'clock, 8.15. Then we lie down. I was like, oh, the final lie down. Oh, I made it. Something happened for me at the end of that class, though, you know, even though I was didn't know what I was doing, I was flopping around like a fish out of water. I couldn't do any of the poses. I couldn't forward bend. I fell out of triangle pose. Super embarrassing. You know, I landed on someone else in triangle pose. Like people don't fall out of triangle pose. And I fell out of triangle pose, but I kept practicing and I was there and, you know, didn't know what I was doing and couldn't do any of the postures really. 
was super tight, was super inflexible. And then I remember lying there at the end, really sweated, almost so really sweaty, sweaty to the point of humiliation almost. And then I had this moment where my mind was silent. My mind had never been silent before in my life up until that moment. It was just total quiet, totally quiet. My body felt calm. My body felt super calm. And then I felt the sense of peace that I can only describe as being comfortable in my own skin for the first time in my life. There was no self-hatred. There was no judgment. There was no need for my body to be a different size or a different shape or, you know, for me to be this way or there's no, no familiar, none of that familiar judgment and the thoughts stopped. So then I thought, I didn't think actually I was there for a little bit. And when I, when they called us up out of this uh, final relaxation, I just remember thinking, I got to come back. I got to come back. I got to keep practicing. I got to come back. So from there, I started to just practice more and more and I just kept coming back. I didn't really know there were other styles of yoga. I went to India, as I said, within the first year I was practicing and I just kept practicing, just kept practicing, kept practicing, kept practicing. And then that's, that's kind of why I'm here today. Cause I've just kept practicing within the last more than 20 years that I've been practicing. I've done very few other styles of yoga, because like I said, like the map works for me. If it didn't work for me, if I was getting signals from my own body, that it was harming me. If, uh, there was, if I had, you know, signals from the community that it wasn't good. If I had all, if I had these signals that it wasn't working, then I would need to look outward. But for me, this is, has been really, really, really works for me. And um, that's why I keep practicing. I feel a little better each time I practice. So fear is a wonderful thing to have come up during the yoga practice. So congratulations, Marina. This is awesome. You're probably thinking, why is this awesome? I am not interested in, uh, you know, the experience of fear being awesome. But the idea, the idea is that when fear comes up in the yoga practice, this is a wonderful opportunity to work on the habit pattern of how the mind, the body, and the emotional system react to the presence of fear. So this is a wonderful opportunity to work on what is called a very, very deep samskara, a very, very deep pattern of reactivity. So when there's fear present, what do we want to do? We want to run for the door. Ah, it's over. I don't want to do this posture anymore. Get me out. Okay. I don't like back bend. Ah, I got to come out. Headstand. I'm afraid. Ah, I got to come out. Ah, back bend. Ah, I don't want this anymore. I don't do it. We avoid, we run away, you know, and this is what we do to fear. Now you have new training. Next time the fear comes up, you're in the headstand or you're trying to do the headstand. You don't need to do the full posture. Go to the point where you're afraid. Go to the exact point. I'm afraid. Great. Pause. Don't blow past your fear. Don't ignore it. Become intimate with your fear and feel it in the body. Oh, I'm afraid. What does that feel like? What is fear? Here I feel it. I feel tension in my neck. I feel heating sensations. My heartbeat is accelerating. My breath is disturbed. I feel this. This is fear. It's in my body, trembling, shaking. Make it okay. Make peace with it. Observe it. Don't react to it. Sooner or later, it's going to pass. If it doesn't pass, you have number two. You can start to employ clear, logical technique. So you observe. First you observe. Fear is present. If it doesn't pass, then you go to step number two, clear, logical technique. So this begins to be very practical and pragmatic. Okay, I'm aware that fear is present. Fear is not going away. Fear is present with me. So I'm going to talk to myself. Number one, I'm okay. My feet are on the ground, not even doing the headstand. I'm good. I'm on the ground. I'm not going to fall. Here I am. I feel my shoulders. They're my shoulders. I'm not going to try to go up and headstand until the fear calms down. I'm just going to try to feel my shoulders. After I feel my shoulders, I'm going to try 
to activate the pelvic floor. After the pelvic floor is active, go back to my breath. If the fear abates, the fear dissipates, it's a little bit, little bit lessening, then I might try to lift one leg off the ground. You lift one leg, fear comes back. Okay, here it is, fear again, great. Here I am, I'm feeling fear. Back to intense breathing, cannot breathe. Shoulders are shaking, pelvic floor is going crazy. I cannot breathe, great. I'm not gonna lift the second leg. I'm just gonna observe, fear is present. Then I'm gonna check in, feel my shoulders. One foot is off the, on the ground. Definitely, I'm not at risk of anything happening. One foot is on the ground. What can happen to me? Where I'm gonna fall? I'm not gonna fall anywhere. Okay, I accept. I am afraid illogically and I accept it. Okay, here I am. I take five breaths. Fear is still present. You come on down. Fear is gone. Fear is gone. Oh, fear is gone. Maybe I can lift the second leg. Here's the most dangerous place for fear to happen in the headstand. You go up, then you're balancing. That is the most dangerous place for fear to happen and the, one of the most common because you work so hard. Here I go. I'm going to get up and headstand. I'm going to get up. I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I'm up. I'm up. Ah! What now? Oh no, I'm up. We're as afraid of our success as we are as our, of our failure. So when we're up there and you're up, you're terrified. So what can you do? Again, same technique. Oh, now I know what to do. I did this before. I feel the shoulders. I feel the breath. They're my feet. Then I feel this disturbed breathing. Okay, no problem. I squeeze the pelvic floor. If the fear not stopping, come on down. If the fear may stop, oh, fear stop. Okay, then we're balancing. We're breathing. Now you stayed up for five breaths. Now you stayed up for 10 breaths. Unfortunately, with the fear, this is not like that. You got to work with it. It takes some, some time. Some people get over it in a few months. Some people, some years later. If you have the teacher that can spot you, this can really help you get over the fear. Because if you don't trust yourself at that moment, that deferential authority is very, very helpful. My first headstand, I was terrified. I thought there's no way I'm going to go up and do this without breaking my neck. I had horrible visions of a broken neck just from the idea of doing headstand. And I didn't trust myself at all because my shoulders were weak and I had no core. But I looked at the man who was teaching and I made an evaluation. I looked at him and I thought, this dude has very large muscles. I don't have any faith in myself, but I'm pretty sure that this guy could pick me up off the ground and just hold me on my head. So you know what? I'm going to throw my body in the air and I'm just going to make sure he promises to catch me. And he did. And he caught me. And I wasn't an easy person to help because I had no strength and I was like a jellyfish. But he did a good job and he put me down. And then after that, he said to me very kindly, next time I show you how to use the wall. <laughs> so I, it took me a year to practice, to actually get up in the headstand. So work with your fear and understand that you're doing very good, deep work in the yoga practice when you're working on fear. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Inspiration Show. It's always a pleasure to share the inner space of the yoga journey with you. Remember, you can always find me online at omstars.com, www.omstars.com, and on my YouTube channel and all social media at Kino Yoga. I look forward to seeing you on the mat. And more than anything, I hope you take the inspiration to practice yoga and make your world a better place. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. 
You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.